Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Bill's lesson today is in Luke chapter 16, titled, Reluctant Witness from Hell, Part 2. Hello, good morning. Everybody okay? As far as you know? We're in Luke chapter 16. We're working our way through the book of Luke. And uh, at a, uh, a sweet spot, I guess if we could call it that, in the book of Luke, where we have these parables, uh, many of which are unique to Luke. Uh, the parables of Jesus um, probably told many times, many places. Uh, there's no television. You know, Jesus is, is, is traveling through the land of Israel, town to town, place to place, uh, often preaching similar things, often preaching the same stories because the needs are the same, circumstances are the same, sinners that need repentance, sinners that need to return to God, people that need their lives changed, uh, circumstances that need to be spoken to, so often using the same stories, sometimes under different circumstances. That's why you read the Gospels and you find these, some, some of these parables, not this one, but we're in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. It's unique to Luke, unique to Luke as far as the Gospels go, but some of these parables are all, all four Gospels, sometimes three of them, sometimes two of them. Uh, and then sometimes when you read them, they're like, okay, he tells it this way one way, or maybe Mark wrote it differently, or John wrote it differently than this one. And in some cases, it could have been different necessarily, but in most cases, they're talking about two totally separate instances. You have two totally separate instances, for instance, in the book of Luke, where you have uh, the, the Lord's Prayer as we know it, uh, you, know, fa- our, you know, our Father, if you will. And you have the Lord's Prayer in the book of Matthew. And, and there, there are significant differences between the two. But if you'll look at them, they're told in to- totally different places. And so Jesus is teaching on prayer in both cases. But one is from a position of he's trying to instruct people who don't want to listen to him. In other cases, he's instructing people who do want to listen to him. And so and the points that he's making, how, how would you like to have everything that you've said put in a book and uh, somebody to analyze it for the next 2,000 years? Well, I bet we can find some things that didn't, you told it differently, let's just say that, from one time to the next. And, uh, because circumstances change and people change and needs change and stories change because uh, the point that you're trying to make is also, also different. So same is true with Jesus. People say, oh, there's contradictions in the Scriptures. Now, the contradiction is between your ears. It's not in the Scriptures. In other words, it's, not, it's that you don't understand it is the reason why it contradicts. It's not because it's not true. It's not because it's not accurate. But you do not understand the circumstances of the situation. If, if all you're going to do is read it in a cursory fashion, well, yeah, you're going to find contradictions. But it's because of your lack and not that of Scriptures, if, uh, if I can say that. So, and I guess I can because I just did. So there you go. Luke 16 is where we are. Verses 19 through 31. And we began last time looking at this parable. And it's a parable of death and hell. And I know that we're in the season, this is the holiday season, we have our lights up for the first time, and this is all about hope and the coming of Jesus Christ, but it's not where we are in the scriptures, and yeah, I, I understand that. And uh, so I don't know what to tell you other than just to get over it, because that's where we are. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're making our way through, we take the good with the bad, if you could call it that, we take the happy with the sad, the hopeful with the, with the depressing, because all the word of God for all the people of God, and that's what we have to have. And so here we are, Luke chapter 16 Verses 19 through 31 is a story of a man who died and, and went to hell. Let's take a look at it. Therefore, uh, now there was a certain man, verse 19. He habitually dressed, so he's wealthy, very, very wealthy. Fine linen and gaily living and splendor every day. And a certain poor man, very much the opposite, named Lazarus, who was laid at his gate, covered with sores. He would go to certain per- possible better places to, uh, to, to prosper there. And he was laid at this guy's gate. So 
He's very sick. He's very lame. Apparently, he has to be laid there. The word literally means to be dumped there. So he's dumped there, and uh, he, he is going to, uh, that's where his life is. Longing to be fed, very hungry also, with the crumbs which are falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sore. So, so wow. Yeah, have you been that sick? Hmm. Now it came about that the poor man died and was carried away to the angels to Abraham's bosom, which is a colloquial way to say in heaven or paradise. Uh, and the rich man also died, but it doesn't say where he went, but you're going to see it in the next verse. And in Hades, he, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue that I am I'm in agony this flame. What kind of place is it? How horrible does it have to be that a drop of water will make all the difference for you? That's not a place you've ever been in and a place you can't imagine. But a place that Jesus is warning us about. We would, do, we would be very wise to listen to him. Besides all this, between us and you, there's this great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, so he can't get any relief for himself. Notice he's looking there for relief for his family. That's, that's awesome, I think, uh, to a certain degree. Father, be send him to my father's house, my five brothers, that I may warn them lest they also come to the place of torment. So he's asking Lazarus to be raised from the dead so he can go back and warn his brothers. He's figured that'll work. And Moses, notice Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets to hear them. Let them hear them. So Moses and the prophets is the way that a Jew referred to the Bible, whole Bible. Moses writes the first five books of, of the Bible and the prophets are the rest. Say so they have the Bible, they should be listening to what God says. That makes sense. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from Joseph from the dead, they will repent. And his answer is interesting, no, they won't. Is that the way you think? So that's what the Bible teaches. No, they won't, Abraham says effectively, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets of the Bible. Neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. That's an amazing statement. We're going to take that in together as we consider these things. So since we're on, you know, morbid issues, have you, have you considered your epitaph? You know, what's going to be written on your tombstone? It's a goal, it, you know, we set goals, right? So how about a goal of what you want people to believe about you once you're gone? <laughs> so she was a good old girl, you know, so why don't you go ahead and plan that and then try to be a good old girl? How about that? That'd be a great, or a guy, whatever, whichever case may be. Here's an interesting epitaph from someone up north, I'm not exactly sure, one of here in the States. He had this, this scrawl on his tombstone. This is what it says. Quote, Consider, young man, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare, young man, to follow me. So, wow, what a sobering uh, epitaph, right? Somewhere later on, some wise acre came along and scrawled these words underneath that epitaph. To follow you, quote, to follow you, I am not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> pretty good. Uh, I would say pretty biblical because uh, life can go a lot of directions. In fact, it does. Every one of us here have different journeys that we're on. But I want you to understand that in eternity, there's not but two. And if you want to understand what life is about in all the directions that we go, life is really boils down to you deciding where, which one of these two you're going to spend forever in. 
Which one of these two? I know, you know, the stock market. I know your job. I know the circumstances. I know the real estate market. I know all these things. I'm just telling you, as soon as this is over, none of that's going to matter. What matters is, is your opportunity that you had here to make decisions and, and, and get right with God. And because and, I say this to say simply, as we said last time, 90% of Americans believe in God. You think they all believe they're going to go to heaven? Of course they do. I could, I could be sitting in a crowd of millions right now, which is maybe millions. You know, let's just believe on the internet, millions are watching right now. Everybody raise your hand who, who plans to go to heaven. Out there in the audience, out there in the world, you know, same, same number, millions upon millions, you know, because I'm that famous. I know, they, you know, watch it because, you know, they, they're judging you by the shirts that you wear here on the front rows and stuff like that. Somebody mistook your bald spot for mine, Tom, and I'm offended. You should be offended. I don't know which one. So... This is Tom's bald spot. It's not my bald spot because I'm up here and he's over there. So, so millions now raise their hands believing they were going to go to heaven. Are they all going to go to heaven? No, they're not. Because you raise your hand, because you believe sincerely that you're going to heaven, does not guarantee you a place there. Can you understand that if what you believe about getting to heaven disagrees with what God says gets you there, that you're not going to go? It's not your heaven. This is not your eternity. You didn't invent it. It doesn't belong to you. You're not going to get to heaven and have some kind of arbitration with God. You're not. You're not. It's going to be his way, truly, or not another way. So people are going to be shocked. Populated hell is going to be populated by people who are shocked to find themselves there. You plan to go to heaven, what's your plan? What's your plan? Most people ask that question to you. They don't have a plan. I don't know. I'm just going to be a good person, stay ahead of the masses. Okay, well, it's not what the Scripture says. Not what at all it says. It says, here's what it says very in the congealed, my congealed form. You have to have a personal encounter with Jesus, who is the Savior, in which you trust him to pay for your sins so that your sins can be forgiven, and he will guarantee you a home in heaven. He's the only Savior. You cannot save yourself. That is the congealed version. You have to have a personal encounter with the Savior. Don't talk to me about your church attendance and how good a person you are, even though I think those things are great. I'd rather you be that than something else. But, but to expect that somehow your idea of getting to heaven is going to be okay and rubber stamped by God when you get there, I'm sorry, you'll be forever mistaken. Don't, don't do that to yourself. So, so Jesus is the eternal one. He's the owner of both places. He created both of them. He knows what gets you in and what gets you out of both places, and you're not going to listen to him. So how long have you lived? Can you tell me what's going to happen tomorrow for sure? And yet you're, you're, you're basing your whole eternity on a hunch? That you have? And, and I don't know, knuckleheaded people that you listen to? Really? They've not been there either? But the one who's come from eternity into time and back into eternity has told you how it all works, and you're not going to listen to him. I would say that's not very wise. For sure. How long do you plan to live, right? You, you can't even tell me what's happening tomorrow, so, so how can you tell me, how can you possibly bet your whole eternity on that? It'd be crazy. That's why God comes to us in Jesus and comes and teaches us these stories as, as sobering, as hard as they are, because we need to hear them. So this story breaks into three parts. If you were with us last time, we saw this, and we're going to run through these pretty quick because we've got to get to the stuff we didn't talk about last time. But it breaks into a life, these guys, both these guys, Lazarus and the rich man, their life, their death, both of them relatively short, but the life after death is what it spends most of the time on. The life of the rich man, of course, is extreme wealth. Uh, like I said, there was no clothing industry back then. Uh, the clothing industry had to be, everything was last thing was made by hand. There was no Walmarts. There was no Dillards. Uh, if, you had a, if, you may, for, if you were a middle income person, you may have five sets of clothes you lived in your whole life from, from 
birth till elementary school, from elementary school to junior high, from junior high to high school, uh, from junior high, high school until you're married, and then the rest of your life, one more set of clothes. That's it. And you'd be very, very, very blessed to have that. You would have retrofitted the stuff that you had from the other, other times that had been sewed in together. They just simply, you couldn't afford. It was very, very hard and very, very expensive to, to have clothing made. The fact that this guy was living in lavish clothes every single day tells you he is among the very, very high percentile. No, not very many people like him in the whole world, much less in, in the land of Israel as it's described here. So, so we're, we're looking at extremes. You have this other guy who's extremely poor. The word for the Greek for, for poor means he literally has nothing. Like he's wearing it. It's on it. Everything that he has. No storage unit, no car, no nothing, no house to store anything in. Extreme poverty, also extremely ill. Like I said, late at the gate, it's kind of like he kicked him out. Drive by on a cart and just push him out because he couldn't get there by himself. At the best place he possibly could, possibly to beg. Hopefully have just a morsel to eat. Hoping to eat what was coming from the man's table again, extreme hunger. We talked about this last time. The crumbs is talking about there. We interpret crumbs very differently than they would have. They didn't have crumbs the way we do. They would take their old bread. Their bread was not Wonder Bread. It was not, I don't know, Mrs. Baird's or H-E-B or not that kind of bread. It was no buns. They didn't, most of it didn't rise. They'd make tortillas out of it, pita bread, if you will. They would eat this bread. It was a part of their daily meal. It was the, the basis of all that they did. In some cultures, it's rice. In some cultures, it's other things. In their culture, it was bread. And they would have these, these flat pieces of bread. And, and if you were wealthy, you made a lot of it, and you had some left over. And if it was left over very long, you know, without refrigeration or anything else like that, the stuff got stale within a day or two. And so, of course, they were too good to eat that stuff. And so what they would do is they would wipe their hands with it. So at the end of the meal, you didn't have a cloth napkin because... Like I said, it's very expensive to build stuff like that. Didn't have paper. Paper wasn't invented for probably 300 years. They would wipe their hands with the old tortillas, if you will, the old bread. They would wad it up, throw it under the table, and the dogs ate it. With that food, the guy was longing to eat. If he could just get a bite, he was happy to have that. Nasty stuff, right? Stuff we wouldn't otherwise eat. He would, pick, he would be happy to have gotten that much. So extreme circumstances, very rich, very poor. They both die, the major equalizer, right, of everyone. And so we all go through the same gate when we get to the end, no matter what our life, how, many, how different our life is. And, and in this story, you need to understand the culture, and they would have, it's part of the force of the story, is that in that culture, they believe that how you live in this life is how you're going to be in the next life. So they would have assumed that the rich guy was an automatic admin into heaven, and that the poor guy, they, they considered the way you lived in this life is to be eternity's mark on you. So if you're poor and sick and live a short life, eternity is marking you as a sinner who's headed to hell. Hell's got to have occupants, and they've already marked you as one of those. That's the way they would have seen it. Likewise, the truth would have been opposite would have true for the rich guy. The fact that he's wealthy, the fact that he's prosperous, the fact that everything he has either turns to gold or already is, they would have considered him and the rich, rich clothing would have, he's marked by heaven. And notice the story is the exact opposite. It would have been, they would have been blown away by this. I hope you know, maybe you haven't, don't know this, but your conditions in life have maybe nothing to do with where you're headed. I hope you know that. Your, your, your circumstances right now may not have anything, and they could be really bad, may not have anything, listen, to do with God's opinion of you. You care to dicker with me, talk to Job. Or how about this, talk to Jesus. Let's see, let's, let's follow how prosperous he was. He, when he died, he didn't have anything but what he had on. The same as this dude. 
Nothing. They, they split up his clothes because that's all he had. He dies at how old? 33, so that's not a very old life. How did he die? And he, on trumped-up charges? Obviously, he's cursed of God. In their culture, they would have thought that. No, he's definitely not. He's the son of God. He's the only begotten of the Father. So, so there was no relationship between how he was treated in this life and how God actually felt about him. I'm just saying that may be very true for you. So be very careful if you think you've got all, everything coming up roses for you and think, oh, God's blessing me. Well, I'm not saying he's not. I would say more carefully, he's putting you to the test. And brother, you just got one life to pass. Be careful. Be very careful. And your life may be really, really bad, and it may not have anything to do with how God feels about you. Anyway, just, just an important point to make, make here. So these guys go the opposite places of where everybody would have thought, and they immediately go to, the, notice, immediately go to places of complete consciousness. This guy, uh, the rich man, goes to a place of torment, which, by the way, is the same place that awaits everyone who dies outside of faith in Christ, not turning to God. Are you ready for that, if, if that is you? Well, I don't think it's going to turn out that way. Well, you're welcome to think whatever you want. Just, just, I, may I say, what's the chances of you being right? Since you can't tell me what you're going to do tomorrow for sure, but you're going to bait your whole eternity on a hunch. Hmm, doesn't seem too wise to me. This guy's wound up in a place he never thought he would be. And the scripture says he lifted up his eyes. Literally, he came to himself. He had a real, he first moment where he realized, uh-oh, that's not the place to have your uh-oh experience. All right, we all have them. We all wake up, hopefully, sometime, and hear me, you're going to. You're going to. Eternity's going to be a place where we're all going to be 100% awake. Totally sober. This guy is very sober. They, by the pre previous chapter, he got sober. He really, literally and figuratively in every way. The, 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 the prodigal son, he went out and just squandered everything, but he came to himself before he died. That's the way to do it. It's after you die, it's a guarantee. The great thing is, is that before you die, you can come to, it means you've left yourself, by the way, what you, what you should have known, what was taught to you, what was the right way. He didn't know these things, he just didn't do it. But he came back to himself and was able to repent and make things right. And that's the opportunity you have in this life. It's very short. Don't waste your opportunities. Because the next life is going to be complete sobriety. Complete. But no chance to change your destiny. That's the difference. And it is huge. Massive. So, so after death, he has complete realization of himself. He also has complete memory. In verse 25, it tells us there that, that in other places, it tells us there that Abraham is calling his to, to his remembrance. Remember, son, that in the life that you lived, you had everything. So he has a memory in eternity. Does that bother you? Some of us have a problem with eternity. One of the great things about eternity is we're going to be able to forget everything. I can't find that in the Bible. I mean, you may have that opinion. I'm just saying you didn't get it from the Scriptures as best I can tell. Neither heaven nor hell are going to be a place of oblivion. You know, a place of a complete realization of whatever happened in this life. As far as hell is concerned, you're going to have a memory, if you wind up there, and I hope you don't, a memory of every time you had an opportunity to do the right thing and turn to God. You're never going to be able to forget it. Part of what's going to make hell, hell. Your memory's going to be perfect there. We forget things here, don't we? Why is that? Well, for you young people, here's what you need to know. It don't get no better. You don't get prettier. You don't get skinnier. Your hair doesn't get thicker. It doesn't get darker. You don't get healthier. 
we go downhill. We don't go uphill. A whole evolution thing, there's absolutely no evidence. We devolve. We come apart in the world. We don't come together in the world. We get sicker, we get worse. Our memory fades, right, over time. We forget things. Sometimes we can't forget certain things. We'd love to forget. But hell and heaven are going to be places of complete restoration. Complete restoration of everything. Uh, we, we have people in this life, because of their memories, they, they fall into things like drugs and alcohol. I understand that. They want to get rid of, you know, whatever. Of course, as soon as they come out of that, they, go right, they have to go right back to it because you can't forget. And, and we have people that take their own lives, unfortunately, because of their memories, right? I just want to say this, and, and again, not, not casting any judgment on what they do or don't do. I'm just saying, understand, eternity is going to be a place, no Alzheimer's there. No forgetting there. Very clear in the statements that Jesus makes here. Very clear this guy had a full understanding of all that had happened to him. Members, his son, brothers, his circumstances, the chances he had. He even knows Lazarus, even though he did nothing for him. And what, what happened to Lazarus, he knows all those things. So eternity is a place of clear memory, also a place of clear, very, very, much, very, very much sobriety. Uh, down there in verse 27, he's so sober, he's like, I, I, hell is a real place, and people are really going there, and I've got to do something about it. And he's, he's intervening for them. Send back Lazarus. Wow. My, you know, like I said, it's, it, you, you come to yourself there. It's going to be too late, but you, you come to yourself. Rather, rather indicting, I, don't you think, I mean, given our current state, how sober are we Christians? Jesus has something to offend everybody. I'm not just talking about those headed for hell. What about those headed for heaven? It, it, it's sobering, isn't it? Or it should be, indicting to us when we think about how we fail to share and fail to care. And I got a guy here in hell who cares, seems to care more than I do a lot of times about the people who don't know Christ. It's interesting. I mean, do people in hell right now have greater burden for people without Christ than we do? It's very indicting. Very indicting. Sobering thought, final one. We're going to get other ones, but the final one I'm going to say on this. If we had an option, if you had an option to spend 30 seconds in hell or heaven, which would you choose? Me too. <laughs> Me too. I'm just saying I don't think the world would be a better place if we got 30 seconds in heaven as much as the world would be a better place if the church got, th got ran through hell for about 30 seconds. I think the church would be far more effective than she is. Far more burdened than what she is. So he calls this guy Father Abraham. Father Abraham, why does he do that? Because that was a classic statement for a Jew to a Jew. The father of all the Jews, Father Abraham. They called him this. So, so I thought they thought all Jews went to heaven. I mean, you got the blood of Abraham in your veins. You're in. I mean, yeah, there's some stuff you need to do, but hey, you know, you're 99.9% there. So he's not, though. Shocker. I, I thought all Baptists went to heaven, by the way. Did you know that? <laughs> not any more than all Jews do. Lutherans, got any of those? Presbyterians. Uh, whatever your denomination, your background. Not, not for those reasons. Not for any of those reasons. Are you going there? Again, not the good people, not even the people who believe in God. So, so the devil believes in God. He's not the one there. How are you better than him? Again, state as plainly as I possibly can, you must have a personal encounter with the Savior where you place your trust in him for all eternity to save you from your sins. And if you've not done that, and I can tell you hell, heaven's not assured to you at all. Verses 25 and 26, there, notice there's no mention in here. You can look there, but you're not, there's what you won't find of any repentance from him. 
Hell's not a place of remediation. You don't get remedied. You don't get fixed there. He doesn't get better. He doesn't, okay, well, I started, you know, like prison. Well, I started off prison, I was really trying to get out, but after 10 years, man, I really repented and changed my life. There is no chance for change in this place. The chance for you to change, to turn over a new leaf, to make a good decision, to go in the right direction, to repent, is in this life, not the next one. If, if, if hell is anything, it is this. It is a place that crystallizes what you were in this life forever. Forever and ever. Crystallizes it, places it with no relief and no mitigation, a place where one suffers so profoundly that the tiniest drop of water makes all the difference, could make all the difference for you. Again, we don't know this place. We don't understand this place. Jesus is trying to teach us. I hope you're listening. I hope that we are. So, so you enjoyed, as this, as this guy does, all the providences of God, but you didn't love him and thank him in return? All the kindness of God, which the Scripture says lead us to repentance, but you didn't repent? You're living every day on borrowed time, on borrowed breath, and yet you're not returning those things to God and say, God, I submit myself to you in whatever process you have. Wow. Wow, that was this rich man. So, so what we really need to do is repent of our riches, right? So what I ask the deacons to do is they're going to pass around an offering plate, and I want you to put all of your bank account numbers and Social Security numbers and. If you could bring your titles next Sunday, you know, to all your properties. We can get rid of all those things that are dragging you down to hell. Is that really what I've heard preachers say? You know, it's, it's evil to be rich. And uh, let me just say this. There are rich people who are evil, but it's not what made them evil. Your riches is a lack thereof or just simply a test, and it just brings out who you really are. They don't change anything, because who you really are is who you really are. You want to put a person to a test, take away all his money, or give him a whole bunch of it, you're going to find out exactly who he is or exactly who she is. This only brings out what's going on here. And, and, and just, a, just as a word against those who say, well, riches corrupt you and they tear you all apart. And I'm not saying that there are not trials and tests and troubles that come with them. But I will say this. There's another rich man in this story, even more rich than the rich man. Did you see him? His name is Abraham. He's not in hell. Because that's not a place necessarily for the rich or for the poor. It's, for, it's hell, heaven's a place for the, those who place their faith in God's son Jesus. And that definitely is Abraham. Abraham was more wealthy than possibly you could have ever thought or imagined. Let me just give you an illustration. If you read carefully the Old Testament, one of the things you'll find about Abraham is just simply his, what he had. Scripture says he was very, God blessed him, he was very, very wealthy, yada, yada. But we have a certain circumstance in the book of Genesis where there's, there has to be a break between he and his nephew Lot. Remember the story? Nephew Lot had been running with Abraham, and he's accumulating, you know, holdings. And Abraham, of course, has holdings and power and servants and other things. And, and uh, it says that there was no more room, that literally Lot had to go across the Jordan River because Abraham, so his, his holdings dominated the whole other side. So the whole promised land with the, the cows and chickens and goldfish and servants and tents and everything else that, that Abraham had, that he had so much of it, there was not enough room for Lot to stay on his side of the Jordan River. Uh, that's mind-boggling. Let me, let me just illustrate this for you. How, how wealthy was this guy? That there, there was not enough room for anybody else to be on his side of the river. Now, I've told you before, and I've been there just recently, Israel's a small place. For a nation, it is small. But for a single holding, 
5.5 million acres is the current, current land mass of, of Israel. It was bigger than that in the time, time of Abraham. So he had so much goats and sheep and camels and cows and corn and cotton and, I don't know, sugar cane or whatever else he grew, that there was no room on 5.5 million. How, much, how many cows is that? See, I think you've, we've maybe underestimated how wealthy this guy was. Very, very wealthy. And yet, his circumstances are completely different. So again, it's not riches that condemn us. It's our response to them. It's just a test. That whole life is just a test. Your health, your abilities, your capabilities, your opportunities, the money or lack of the money that you have, just simply a test. You really need to pass that test. Verses 27 through 31. It, let's... let's conclude with that because I think it's, it's rich and it's important for us not to say that any of the rest of it isn't, but it's rich and important because it's a point that needs to be made very strongly. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you will send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house. So bring him back from the dead. Huge miracle. That I have five brothers and that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, they have Moses. They had the Bible. Let them listen to it. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. A miracle, God. Bring about a miracle, right? He said, no, that's not true. Is that what you would have said? I don't know about what I would have said before studying the Scriptures. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Wow, I think that is so instructive. So, so, but, but isn't there a part of you that agrees? Why doesn't God just pull out all the stops? If God really wants people to be in heaven, here's the argument. Why doesn't it just blanket the sky with angels? Resurrect, I don't know, half the cemeteries in the United States of America, and then the rest of us will turn to Christ, right? No, they won't. No, they won't, number one, because that's what Jesus says. So they know they won't. But also, not only does Jesus say it, he also demonstrated it. Remember how many, how many miracles did Jesus do? Countless. You know, he banned, literally banned physical ailments from the whole promised land. Every person that came near him healed, no matter what it was. Mental illness, physical illness, spiritual, demonic illness, all of them healed. They, all they had in some cases to touch him, healed. In long, long illnesses that there were no answers for, boom, it, every time they came in contact with Jesus, every time, Jesus, at a distance, he would just simply will that a servant be healed or another person be healed, boom, they were just everybody healed. Fed them all. 5,000 men, it says on one occasion, you add, like I said, a one woman and one child that, you got at least 15,000. 4,000 on another occasion, you got 16,000 there. I mean, what, what do we have? You're, you're talking about mass, walks on the water, raises people actually from the dead and yet look at what it says here here's the near the end of his ministry in john what it says about their faith well, although he had done so many signs jesus before them they did not believe in him because i'm telling you all those miracles are lesser miracles they're actually small change small change doesn't change anybody it's it's big money that changes people and you know what the big money is the word of god the real miracle, listen, is the word. Anything other miracle is something less. So if they will not hear the power of the word of God, and that is what it is, 
It is powerful. If they will not hear it, Jesus, mainly his ministry was not healing. He healed as he went. His main ministry was preaching the kingdom. They didn't listen to him. So they didn't listen to him, what he said. Of course they're not going to be converted by any other miracle he does. Of course they're not. See, it's not that God doesn't care and he doesn't want people reached. He just knows that the most powerful thing that he's given to the world is his word. And if they will not listen to his word, they will not listen to anything else. They will, you will not. Oh, if he, would say, if he had saved my grandmother, I would have trusted him. No, you wouldn't have. If he had healed my leg, I would have gotten saved. No, you wouldn't have. No, you wouldn't have, because you're not going to tell, don't tell me you're going to believe a lesser miracle when you didn't believe the greater miracle, his word. He's teaching you, he's speaking directly to you, and you're putting him off, and you're not listening to him. He did, write, by the way, raise people from the dead. In fact, not long after he says this story, this parable, he raises a guy by the name of Lazarus from the dead, different Lazarus. But you know what happened, right? Lazarus had been dead, the grave four days, he raises him from the dead, it becomes this great revival. Of course, lots of people believe because of the miracle, because not to say miracles aren't important. But, but notice the, the main Bible teachers, notice their response. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? What's the problem with that? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. What are they worried about? And the Romans will come and take both our place. They're, we're going to lose our jobs. What idiots, right? What nincompoops. So, so, so this guy is healing and raising people from the dead, and they can't see any, past, any further past the ends of their nose of what their job is or what their position is. Because why? Because miracles don't change people. Yeah, if you believe the miracle of the word, then a miracle like this, of course, goes takes you even further. Nothing. I'm not against miracles in any way. Don't hear, don't hear me, hear me on that for sure. But if you won't believe the word, then it's not a sign in the world's going to change your life, heart. I promise you, it won't. It's not that people don't know. It's just that they don't respond. Again, here's here was their ultimate response. So, so after he raises Lazarus from the dead, notice the plan of the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death. Oh, he's feel bad for Lazarus. So I go through a sickness and death, and I die and I go to heaven, I'm up there in blissful, and then God comes and says to you, you know what, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to go back. I would be so mad, so mad at my sisters and whoever else wanted me to be raised from the dead, and I would be for sure preaching at them, say, you better get it right this time. And then, lo and behold, they're going to try to kill him again, at least by that time he's like, you know, I've been through this before, it's not that big a deal. <laughs> I don't know. Plot to put Lazarus to death because on account of him, many of the Jews went away believing in Jesus. Wow, wow. See, none of the miracles that he did meant anything to them. Yeah, the people that had already believed in his word and trusted what he had said, yeah, the miracle made a difference for them, but it was the greater miracle they believed in first. And if you don't believe the greater miracle, the lesser miracles, even raising somebody from the dead, man, it matters none. But it's not that people don't know. Even though they try to put God out of their minds, Romans 8 makes it very clear. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They put God out. I'm not, God's not a part of my life. I don't even think about him anymore. Okay, good luck with that. Nor are we thankful they, they became fuel in their thoughts. But even though they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they just don't like it, I don't want it, I don't want to think about it, they still can't help it. God gave them over to a debased mind. They wanted it, they didn't want it. They wanted him out of his, their life. I don't want anything to do with God. I don't want to think about God anymore. They can't get away from it because ultimately it's written in their hearts. So although they knew God, God's righteousness decree that, the righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. See, people pass into eternity even though they've 
they've inebriated themselves through some, some system of thought or practice or whatever, or chemical or whatever, to, to think, oh, well, there's no such thing as God, there's no such thing as judgment. Yeah, deep in their hearts, they know. They know. They, they know what's heading, and because, because they know this, because the ultimate, the ultimate communication power of God has already gotten to them, and that's this. For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of thoughts and the intents of the heart. See, all, all other miracles are outside of you, even your physical body. It's not where the problem is. So my broken leg or my sick grandma, or the fact that I need this miracle or that miracle, yeah, that's a problem, but that's, not the, that's on the outside of me. What's on the inside, the discerner of the thoughts and the intents, my heart, you see, to the power of God, the reason why there is not a greater miracle than the Word of God is because of how far it goes. There's not a deeper spot than that. Where we're going to go, if we can't get to you there, we're not going to get to you from anything on the outside of you. The power of God, the Word of God is... There, the Word of God is sufficient. God says it. Abraham says it. Jesus says it. The testimony of history proclaims it. Uh, the wicked do not cease, as we back to our story, to exist. They go to a place of torment, no matter what you think about it. Jesus said hell is a real, real indeed. God desires very clearly not that we should not go to a place like that, not that any should perish there. His desire is that you come to faith in His Son. How much, how much more can he do than, other than to send his one and only son to die to take your place to pay for your sins? So that if you place, you have a personal encounter with him in which you, play, you trust him, ask him to be your savior, and that God wipes your whole sin slate clean, not just the past stuff or the present stuff, but the future stuff as well. Knowing everything that you would ever have ever done or ever will do. How, 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 how much more clear can it be that God doesn't want you to go to the place that we've been talking about today? I don't see how it could be more clear than that. But you've got to hear and respond to what God says. But the simple fact is, if you insist to go there, you will do it. But you will do it over the body, the dead body, and the shed blood of Christ. I want to ask if you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Have you had a personal encounter? I'm not asking you if you call yourself a Christian or that you go to church or what denomination you're part of. I'm asking you, have you had a personal encounter with the Savior? Jesus. Jesus wasn't bringing anybody to any denomination. He wasn't bringing anybody into any kind of religious uh, system. He was actually asking them to come into contact and personal relationship with him. See, everlasting life is not a system. It's not an order of doctrine. Everlasting life is a person. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So are you trying to come some other way? That way it won't work. Jesus is the only way. Lord, I thank you that you stand ready to accept everyone who will turn to God through you, who will turn to God knowing that their sins have to be taken care of, have to be forgiven, and there's just one way for that to happen, and that's through you. Jesus, you're the Savior. You're the door. You're the gate. You're the only way in. And all those who come through you, they will be saved. Thank you, God. We have that absolute assurance. Thank you for offering this to us, God. We don't deserve this. We could have gone off into oblivion without you owing us any explanation, but that's not who you are. You love us, not wanting us to perish, but to come to repentance, God. Help us to come to repentance today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptistchurch.org.